Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. In, I just began my 30th year of ministry, uh, specifically preaching, and uh, I've noticed common elements of struggle, and I have seen over the last few years especially uh, an increasing amount of these common elements. And, and, and by the way, both among Christians and non-Christians, it's not just a Christian issue, and it's certainly not just a non-Christian issue. Uh, and by the way, coupled with my own personal experiences as well. So this morning, I definitely do not stand here as some sort of an expert, but a learner and a practitioner, an observer, and someone who is in the process of being healed myself. Uh, but I remember when I was in uh, Bible college, having to do a log and having to do some uh, interviews of other pastors. And I asked the pastor that I was under at that time, one of the questions I had to ask was, how many hours a week do you spend in counseling? And, uh, and I'll just tell you, there have been times in, in ministry where I spend an inordinate amount of time in counseling. I mean, like, a, I mean, a lot. Uh, and mornings, nights, weekends, it, it all, all, always. And, uh, and I remember again, early on him saying three. And I thought... I don't know what the joke is here. Three hours a week. I mean, wow, what a great people. I said, how, how do you only spend three hours a week? He said, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Because I, I counsel from the Word of God, and if people won't listen to the Word of God, then they're not going to sit in my office and listen to me. I don't counsel people that don't sit under the authority of God's Word. And I thought, phew, boy, that is a really strong word, and I think that it's fairly applicable, to be honest. Uh, because it is hard to testify of truth and of biblical truths only to watch people continue in the same patterns of toxicity and, and failure uh, through their Christian life. And it's like, a, it's like a thoroughbred racehorse whose gate won't open at the race, right? It's like the, we, we have all of these opportunities and all of this anticipation and all of these promises delivered to us. And the only problem is, is we just never get out of the gate. And we are singing about the goodness of God. And Chris talked about the, hopefully the images that you can scroll through and you can, and there's no doubt that every one of us are beneficiaries of knowing that God is good and seeing God's goodness and testifying of his goodness. And, and that is 100% true for every one of us. And yet when it comes to living that through our lives, I'm afraid most of us stay paralyzed in our own set. We appreciate him. We appreciate him and we're grateful for him, but most of us to testify to that, to live outside of that, to, to allow ourselves to be the conduit of those things to the world around us, we're just stuck in the gate without the door being able to open. So this morning, I want to share with you uh, very seriously, and, uh, and I, do, I know that there is a... There is a uh, attention in this moment. And you may not sense it yet, uh, but because that tension is coming, I'm going to ask ahead of time if you will please give me grace this morning. And I'm going to do my dead level best to offer it to all of us. Uh, I have tried to figure out how to present this message in a way that doesn't uh, highlight me or us, but highlights what God wants for us. I know that I've heard him clearly, and yet I stand here asking for your, your grace, because I am convinced that while we can run this morning, uh, Satan is the one that is standing beside every one of our gates, latching it closed. And we have grown very content with that because as long as the gate is closed, we have lots of excuses for not winning. And we have things to blame for not winning. And so 
I know this morning that God has brought you and me to this moment, to this hour, to this message for a reason. And so I want us to listen very carefully to what he would say through his word and hopefully through me. And, uh, and I really am serious. If it could go wrong this morning, it has. Uh, and so I know that there's a lot of things working against uh, us this morning, but the Lord is good. And if, if it's us having to live through, uh, listen through obstacles or distractions, we're just going to do that this morning, okay? So there is a, a verse that kind of encapsulates. We talked a little bit about it last week. Uh, everything that we're going to be talking about, and now I thought it was a ser- single sermon, but uh, the Lord just keeps unlocking some things. But it's uh, through a, a small series of, of sermons uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I know I said to turn to 2 Samuel. That's where I'd like for you to stay. And you don't have to turn to 1 Samuel uh, or 1 Timothy chapter 1, but uh, I do want us to memorize this verse at some point, verse 5 of the very first chapter, when Paul tells young Timothy, the aim of our instruction, the aim of our charge is love. And you can put a period there if you want. There's no punctuation in Greek. You can put a period there, but I don't think that it belongs there because he goes on to say that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What Paul gives young Timothy here is the aim of our charge or the reason that we write or the reason that we are on purpose for the Lord is love. That's the reason. And yet he gives us the recipe, the recipe for godly love, the agape kind of unconditional love that he has for us, expects for us to have for him and have for each other, is composed of three parts. First, a pure heart. Second, a good conscience. Third, a sincere faith. These are very important words, and they do make the recipe complete. Now, as I've studied these out, we don't see them as independent of each other, like they're a collection. They are a progression. First, a pure heart, pure meaning remade, meaning cleansed, or uh, the way we get our word catheterized. I'm not going to go back through all of that, but uh, it's, it's a pure heart that has been remade. It once was not, but now it is. Secondly, is a good conscience, a good conscience that used to not be good conscience, These are not things that we get inherently because we are just good people. Some people have them, some people don't. He is saying that once your heart is made pure and you benefit from all of the things that come with a pure heart, you can now take your natural conscience and have it cleansed and therefore become a good conscience and depend upon it. You can have a pure heart spiritually where Jesus can come into your life and yet still be captivated and enslaved by a bad conscience. If you do not take your benefits from your pure heart into yourself, you will live set free a thoroughbred stuck in the gate. And what good is it to have potential what good is it to, to do all the things? What good is it to be valuable if you just sit in the gate? And if, listen, I, I am fairly convinced that Satan doesn't even, doesn't even care if you're a Christian as long as you're paralyzed. And so... Once you have a pure heart, you now can take advantage of a good conscience. And once you mix those things together, a pure heart that produces a good conscience, these together can allow you to live out a sincere faith, a faith that is uh, without guile or unfeigned or anti-hypocritical. Consistent would be a good word. A consistent Uh, faith. So, you know, a lot of times I think that we have ourselves as the chief end of 
our salvation. God Jesus sent, sent Jesus and, and he died for our sins and, and we claim that and so thank God he's given us a pure heart and one day we'll go to heaven. Uh, but, but there's a lot of life to live in between that. And there's a lot of freedom. How many of you have ever heard of the freedom of Christ, freedom in Christ, or all the promises of God, but yet wonder why they don't exist for you? All of the blessings of freedom, and yet we feel so pent up. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. I don't want to get too far in the weeds. But perhaps you're a little bit like me where you can say, I have been saved, but I don't seem to grow in my faith, or I, I don't seem to be able to overcome, or I keep having these same besetting sins in my life, or I'm not developing Christ in my life the way I want, or I'm not loving especially my enemies. I have a hard time loving the people that I love. You know what I mean? Please say yes. I get angry, I get jealous, I hold grudges, I worry, I fear, I become impatient. Does that sound like anybody's resume? I found that in most cases it's because we're trying to live a sincere faith with an unclean or bad conscience. If you've ever wondered why your faith, like your prayer life, is a roller coaster or why your time in the scriptures is a roller coaster, or your ability to love other people is a roller coaster. It's because of your conscience isn't good. Keep beating yourself up. Keep allowing yourself to be beaten up. So today I want you to know, number one, that I love you. And I want you to know that the Lord loves you. That I believe that there is a shift within us that... God wants to use us to not only be set free, but to deliver to us uh, the ability to set others who are captive free as well. From guilt, from shame, from regret, from, you know, they, they, all of these things. And again, I, I know that there are many among us who deal with this, but guilt, shame, regret, all of these things come together and they create a voice inside your head. Are we on the right track? Will anybody raise your hands? Are we on the right track? Okay. Some people are brought up in situations where you're carrying voices that's really not your guilt or your shame at all. It's being imposed upon you. Now, we all have done things that we wish we hadn't done. Certainly, that must be true. Uh, and yet, for some others, but today I want to spend uh, a bulk of our time focused on those things that we carry that do not belong to us, but we've taken possession of. We own, but they're not, they're not really ours. And so I want you to know today that God wants for us to be free, that he is available to take our load of guilt from us. And, and today you may be here and you may have already fought this and you may be free. And you may wonder why anybody would choose to live this way. And oftentimes it's not a choice that people make. So if you're here today and you are free, then I still invite you to please listen because there are people that you live with, work with, live nearby that need to be set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. So there are, I'm, I'm going to use these terms. I, th I feel like that shame, very quickly I want to define these, these terms. Guilt says this is what you've done. Shame says this is who you are. One is about action. One is about identity. I believe that shame is a subset of guilt, and I believe that both of them are subsets of fear. I feel like fear has a major role to play in our, in our inability to trust the Lord. Afraid of missing out, afraid of being exposed, afraid of losing something, afraid of whatever the case may be, of not being known or not being uh, loved or whatever the case may be. But one of the things that the Lord taught me many, many years ago was that he never, never speaks with guilt. He is anti-guilt, in fact, because when you look at guilt 
all you see is just picture guilt as a tunnel. Guilt and shame, put them all in, put them all in there. Guilt and shame looks down a dark tunnel, and all you can see is darkness at the end. That's guilt, shame, regret, fear, hopelessness. God doesn't speak with hopelessness. And it may be semantics, but God speaks with conviction. And conviction has the same circumstances, except at the end, there's light. There's hope at the end. Conviction says, this is what you have done, but here is who you can be. Here is what you've done, but here is what I have done for you. Here is what you are, but I want to give you a new identity, but you have to make a choice to go through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to find the solution to guilt and to shame. So our fallen conscience, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because some of it is just theory, just for us to illustrate the fact. But your fallen conscience, the conscience that you inherit from your first breath, it listens to guilt and shame because it is a slave to your carnal nature. So anytime that guilt and shame is allowed, allowed to rise up, your conscience is taken captive by it. But part of your discipline as a follower of Jesus Christ is to take thoughts or voices, if you will, captive. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they listen to me. But oftentimes Christians do know that it's not God's voice, but they still give a lot of credit to the voices in their head. So we have to learn through discipline to force our conscience and our nature to listen to freedom and purpose rather than guilt and shame. Now, let me define some more terms. There are in the guilt realm, false guilt. We'll call that subjective guilt. That's guilt that does not belong to us, but we carry, or guilt that is imposed upon us by someone else. Now, I want us to compare that with true guilt or objective guilt. Objective guilt is guilt that we do deserve and can be remedied, but oftentimes we have failed to do so. Uh, sometimes I think it's easy for us to look at cultures like um, uh, uh, Pastor Trevor talked about Japan this morning. You look at a country like Japan and, and you know, they will, and again, not Hope Alive is doing an incredible work, but they will accept Christ. Once they hear about him, they will accept him. The problem is their, not their acceptance of Jesus. The problem is their unwillingness to lay every other God down. They want to add him to the library of gods rather than choosing him only. And I think a lot of times it's easy for us to look at them and say, how silly would that be? But let me ask you, how easy is it for us to accept Jesus Christ and yet we continue to carry all of these things around with us too? All of these idols, all of these regrets, all of this shame, this bad con conscience. And again, it's not a salvation issue, but it is a paralysis issue. So today I want to primarily focus on subjective guilt. Uh, you and I sometimes inherit guilt, and I, I don't mean for this to get too personal, and yet I really don't even want it to, uh, but, I, but, I, but it is, it will be. Sometimes personalities, some per personalities are more prone to shame and guilt than others, affected by it more than others. Sometimes that's just a, you know, a, a personality or a, a character issues. But we inherit some of these things, particularly from our parents and grandparents. Um, some of you, even today, the message is going to feel like guilt and shame. But that, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is don't, I don't, my intention is not to add any any of those things to us today. But we inherit it through our humanity. 
We also inherit it spiritually as a byproduct of the fall of all mankind. Uh, I talk about this a lot because I think that it's really important. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God makes Adam, he says that he makes him after his image. And I hear people today say all the time, we're made after God's image. Truth of the matter is, Adam was made after the image of God. But by the time you get to Adam and Eve having children in Genesis chapter 5, it says they were made in the image and likeness of their father, Adam. We inherited Adam's image and likeness, which by this time had fallen. That's the image that we carry, is a fallen image, a fallen likeness. In chapter 5, that image, and uh, when you compare these two things, like how am I made in the image of God? Does God look like me? Uh, no, actually that word like means like a shade or a shadow. If you kind of think about God putting Moses in the cleft of the rock and only looking at my shade or my, my shadow, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of really great illustration right there of Moses being in his likeness of himself. But when you get over to Adam, the image and likeness is both shadow and concrete shape. So he looks like Adam, and he feels like Adam. He thinks like Adam and everything else. It's much different now for us than it was for Adam when he was created in the image and likeness of God. And yet Paul tells the church at Rome in chapter 8 of verse 29, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And we make this a predestination passage like God chooses some to be saved and some not. But look at what was predestined. Look at what God chose for us to be conformed to the image of his son. He gives it back to us. He gives us the chance to get it back. To reinstate, not his look, but to reinstate his character. So we inherit Adam's fallen nature, and that's what our conscience is predisposed to. But we also inherit it personally, and most people know how debilitating it is. And there are a lot of jokes, and I'm not a counselor uh, by trade, uh, but, uh, but I do a lot of advising, I'll say it that way. But uh, there are a lot of jokes about people needing counseling, and when you get there, everything, whose fault is almost every issue of your life? Who's it? Mom and dads. It's just about always mom and dads. And moms, you know, don't take that too well. And uh, probably shouldn't. But it, when you go to secular counseling, it's really easy to, to go back in a person's life and, and to look at all of the mistakes of the people that have nurtured them and, and brought them into nature. But often it's true. We hear certain things in our head our whole lives that have mom and dad's ring to them. Do you know what I mean? Things that even in old age I'm learning, you hear things and you can remember when they were said. It's kind of hard to get away from those things, right? Certainly these things affect all of us to some degree or another. But we're prone to accept false or subjective guilt because some have had harsh parents who just have over time devalued their children, often on purpose. But sometimes it's unintentionally and thoughtless because of a lack of intentionality. Uh, who, who hasn't been out in public and heard parents talk to their children in public in ways that just mortify us? You know, when I hear it, and I do hear it, and when I hear it, I just I think two things. The first thing I think of is, is I just see the parent as a wounded child being talked to the same way. It helps me to be patient. And the second thing is, can you imagine if this is what it's like in public? Can you imagine what it's like at home? Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and which one you love is the one you will speak. That's the one you'll eat of. Death or life. Words have death and life attached to them, especially from parents or a spouse. And I want to encourage you, parents, while this may not affect all of us, there is no doubt 
that there are times as parents where we wish that we could restate some things that our children have heard. And while you cannot go back to Eden, you can not live where you live in your relationship to your children. Remember, words have life and death attached to them. Think about what your kids, what voice your children will hear 30 years from now when you say things to them. I remember, I don't want to put her on the spot, but Kathy Godbold, she worked here for a really long time, not a really long time, sorry, but uh, for a long time. And and, uh, sometimes people would come in and people that we know and sometimes people we don't know and they would come in with their children and they would talk to their children here like they do anywhere else and I always loved how Kathy would say don't don't talk to your children like that I love that you know when a man says it's a little bit different but I think people need to know that they are placing these voices that children are going to have to undo at some point in their life they're going to limit them And, and when you hear those things, and some of you right now are going backwards and you're hearing things and you're becoming things, and our conscience is so moldable, especially from parents or a spouse, that we will identify with its carnal nature and we will believe everything it's told. But it's not just harsh parents, it's also abusive parents. It goes beyond even harsh It's what they inherited, you know. Uh, What's common to some is not common to all, of course. Uh, And, you know, I I know that everybody thinks that raising children, especially Christians, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but, you know, that that parenting is common sense. And to be quite honest, it's just not. Uh, What some people have as common sense isn't common to everybody. Uh, Budgeting isn't—it's not common to everybody. How to how to keep up with your life? It's just not what's common to some is not common to everybody. And rather than getting angry or creating limits and and you know limitations to people, we need to try to be a little more helpful in modeling and training. Everybody doesn't have the same. Uh, level of parental education or love you know it's really hard to love people when you aren't loved as it's just generational right they don't have this there's just this abundance of selfishness and spontaneity I guess we could say a lack of the fruit of the spirit being on the front line in our community, dealing with so many familial issues and dysfunction. Listen, I'm telling you, there is so much abuse in this community, in, our, in the River Valley. I don't mean in our neighborhood, just. Sometimes we can see it and sometimes we don't. I've counseled so many people who, in older age in life, like I'm talking about like when they get up post-children and into retirement. They remember things that were done to them that they had put into a closet and they had locked it because they couldn't deal with the guilt and shame. And at some point in their life, something triggers and they go back 40, 50 years and can remember some of these imposed things upon them. But out of self-preservation, we've locked them away temporarily. Others deal with addictive parents. And there are addicts, many of them have, you know, and again, I don't want to get too personal, but many of you have had to lie for your addictive parents. You've had to keep all these family secrets and you've kept them so carefully and they just pile up. And while they've piled up, they've got dust on them, but they still take up space. And some of you bear that weight. I know that you do. And then... When you get older, you discover sometimes these parents don't go away. They keep on and on and on. I know a lot of times where, where, where people have given themselves to Jesus, they've escaped their own uh, issues, and they get married and give their life to Jesus, and they, they gain this whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of processing, and yet they are still attached. And sometimes these biological families, well, well, who do you think you are? And you think you're so much better than us, and I've got these bills to pay, and I've got all of these things, and you owe us. I know people that have moved away from here to escape this. Uh, 
because it's so heavy. Just feel constant guilt and shame. I mean, I know people who who moved not far from home but changed what they call themselves so nobody could attach to them to their biological family because of guilt and shame. Now, by the way, let me say, I think that we should take care of our parents. The Bible says that we should. But what I'm speaking about here is the fact that sometimes it's manipulation and that's toxic. And we need clear, healthy, godly boundaries. And we need them and our families need us to have them for them too. But all of that guilt that is inherited, it is unbelievable. And it carries itself with us. And, and while we might subdue it for a while, and we are walking with Jesus, and we love Jesus, and we have these experiences, but there are so many people who, who desire to move forward in their faith, but that guilt and shame just locks them up. And they begin this Christian life of just the roller coaster. Sometimes we have guilt and shame heaped upon us by honest mistakes. I mean, who, who among us haven't done things accidentally that make you feel bad, right? Um, there's this guilt that arises when we're responsible for the unintentional pain of others. Maybe even the death or some other so, sort of life change. Um, I had a cousin, I remember when he first got his license, it really wasn't a great time to drive on ice. But he was just learning to drive and he began and he accidentally hit some ice and spun, hit another car and killed them. And it was years before he could even sit in a car again. And listen, I know that, that those things are real and they must be impossible to, to overcome. But the paralysis that comes with guilt and shame was not meant for us to carry, not in Christ. And I could tell you story after story after story where people have experienced things unintentionally and done damage to people. And you all have experienced those things as well due to accidents or negligence or unintentional actions. And it sticks to us. And just when you start to put that smile on your face and you start to get excited, and I'm telling you, it may not happen this, this way for everybody, but you start thinking about the goodness of God and you're tempted to raise your hand and you go, I can't raise my hand, I'm a hypocrite. I just about forgot about that thing that I did how dare I feel good? How f dare I feel valuable? How dare I feel free? I don't deserve to feel free. But thank you, God, for saving a wretch like me. Let's turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 13. You didn't think we were going to get there, but we will. We did. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but uh, I'm going to tell you the really quick story. and I'm, I'm sure you know it already. The story is uh, a tributary of King David, his children. Absalom is his son, and uh, Amnon is a son, and Tamar is a daughter. Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded siblings. Amnon is a half-brother. Here's the problem, though. Amnon has a thing for Tamar. Okay, he, he wants to be with his, her. Uh, the Bible says several times she's beautiful. And he actually makes himself sick, craving her, wanting to be with her. He wakes up in the morning. It's, he's driving himself mad because he is obsessed with her, trying to figure it out. How can I be with her? And one morning, his cousin, his first cousin, uh, David's brother's boy uh, is like, hey, you got to tell me what's going on with you, Amnon. I mean, every morning you wake up and you look terrible. You look exhausted. What is going on? And he says, oh, I'm going to be honest with you. This, this is the thing. And he says, oh, that's easy. You need to pretend like you're sick. And when your dad asks about you, tell your dad that you want Tamar to bring you some food. And when she's in your room, do whatever you want. That's a great idea. Be careful who your friends are. And so this is exactly what happens. Amnon acts sick, 
And he goes into his chamber and his dad's like, what's wrong with Amnon? Well, he's sick. Well, Amnon, what can I do for you? Would you just tell my sister, my half-sister Tamar to come up and fix me something? I want her to come up and fix it so I can watch it with my own eyes. And then uh, I want her to feed me with her own hands. And so it's exactly what David does. David sends Tamar up there and just as Tamar is getting there, Amnon sends everybody out of the chamber. Tamar comes in. She fixes it. Amnon says, no thanks, I'm not hungry. He asks for the doors to be bolted. And, and he says, here's, here's what I want. I'm giving you the whatever version. But you'll, you can read it uh, through there if, if you would like. Verse 7, David sent word to Tamar the palace go to your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him and she does she empties the room calls the uh, he empties the room calls for her to come and feed him and when she comes in the doors are closed verse 12 she said he says come lie with me my sister and she answered verse 12 no my brother she said don't force me such a thing should not be done in Israel don't do this wicked thing but his ears, as the abuser, his ears are closed to the voice of the victims. He can only think about himself. And the cries for help are not heard by the abusers. And, and the, only, the only thing that makes sense here is because the abusers have already lived in such a place of devaluing that they have allowed their conscience to be seared and their ears their hearing has been numbed their conscience and if even for just a moment they do not hear the cries of those they abuse and they no longer feel the guilt and shame this is why the answer and i hear it from time to time if people say well this was just the way i was raised and they defend themselves, or it's all I know, or it's not that bad, or just excuse after excuse. It's, it's just not good enough. It justifies the abuser, and it is rampant in our culture today. It might explain it, but it does not excuse it. It only testifies to our community and our collective seared conscience to not listen to the... He cries of the abused. Look at verse 13. And this is the reason that I even share this particular story. Tamar asked this question in verse 13. She said, what about me? I mean, it's heartbreaking. What about me? Where could I get rid of my what? Shame. My disgrace. What am I going to do with my shame? I have nowhere to place it. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll put it in my pocket and it will live with me for the rest of my life. No fault of her own. In fact, even against her will, she's saddled with guilt and shame that affects a good conscience and she does not know what to do with it. And so Amnon did do what he said he intended to do. And in verse 15, look at what happens here. Then Amnon hated, Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Listen, I, this really isn't a part of the message, but I'm going to tell you that Regarding these type of matters, hate and lust almost always go hand in hand. Because emotions are so violated and we've listened to the carnal nature for so long. This concoction of damaged emotions be, begin to call what is hate love and what is love hate. And it's become selfishness. Our ears are, are, mute, are, uh, are numbed and our conscience is seared. And we just go through life entitled to get and do whatever it is that we wish. So far from the gospel. Verse 17. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. If, you've, if, you're, if you're reading along, look at verse 14, or 18. She was wearing an ornate robe. And that word ornate, uh, we really don't know what that word is in Hebrew. Uh, but 
it's translated as ornate here. Some translations actually says long-sleeved. Uh, and again, we can't say whether or not it is. And in fact, for this context, it really doesn't matter. The, the, the point of it is it was a special kind of clothing that the king's daughters wore to demonstrate their virginity. That's what this is. And it says that the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And she was cast out of the room. The door was bolted. Her vulnerability now and his security. She's losing freedom But the abused is restricted while the abuser is protected. Look at verse 19. Tamar puts ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe that she was wearing. And she put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Tamar is responding to her violation physically and emotionally, losing her identity. She's wearing clothes that identify her as a certain thing, and that is over. What response does she have except to tear him off? But I'm going to skip down to verse 20 here. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. And that's apparently where she lived the rest of her life because that's the last thing we know about Tamar. The woman was ruined by shame because she did not know what to do with it. She had to live with it. Now, as a next step, I want us to look at verse 21. Say, why are we talking about this? Just be patient for a few more minutes. Just an illustration. When King David heard about these things, he was very angry. But he did nothing. He's angry. But he did nothing. You know why? Because David didn't have a good conscience. Two chapters ago, David slept with another man's wife and then had her husband killed. David is standing there saying, well, what grounds could I say anything to him about? What, what could I possibly say? I have lost my moral authority to speak even into my own family. I've got nothing. And how many fathers stand saying, I don't have a clear conscience. How could I ever parent my children? How could I ever speak life into the next generation or into my neighbors? We're carrying all this baggage around. And I'm telling you, you cannot speak with the gospel's authority when you're carrying around regret, shame, guilt, and fear. And you can justify it if you want to. But when you see all the injustices that the gospel would do away with, you just get angry. But I can't speak about it. If you have no other reason except this one to keep a a good conscience. To be able to speak on behalf of those. You you hear people say, well that's what... Same way I grew up, or that's what I did. We call them generational curses, or apples falling from trees, or boys will be boys. Excuse, justify, hide, heap. Just leading to a bad conscience, even for the next generation. Just letting it go. I've dealt with with people who have damaged their life while parents, knowing good and well it was going on, but refusing to speak in because their children knew their guilt. And they hadn't overcome it yet. Now the question is, how do we deal with it? Well, I'll tell you this. If we don't deal with it biblically, we get a different recipe. There are those who become addicted to failure, who have such a negative view of themselves, they just live in the shadows. Sometimes, and again, these are not things that are new to us. I just, you know, we don't talk about them very often, but... Uh, you hear people that just are addicted to abuse, addicted to pain, like, not, not like, I mean, almost attracted to it, not because they love it, but because it's predictable. It's like, I don't like it, but I know how to deal with it. I've dealt with it my whole life. I've actually counseled women who have admitted to me that they're being physically abused. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Why would you stay with that? Because this one might be less than the next one. Because that's all I'm worth. 
what in the world? These are Christian people who are living so devalued. And, and, and while that is really easy to symbolize, that's a huge illustration that materializes outwardly, but so many of us are walking around carrying that internally. Other symptoms of these lies that we hear, latent anger, just this right below the surface, there's just this seething. I know that you know what I'm talking about. This, this real quick response. So, whoa, where's this coming from? It's not coming from a good conscience. Fear of exposure, fear of vulnerability, fear of being fat. There's, there's new syndromes out every day that explain these things. New is imposter syndrome. The fear of being found out that you're not what you pretend to be. Well, what do I pretend to be? I don't even know what I'm pretending to be. People dealing with so much self-harm. Addicted to the pain of tattoos. At least it's beautiful art. Body modifications are through the roof. People that are going through gender modifications. They don't even know who they are anymore. And how dare you assume what they are. It doesn't come from a place of clear conscience, good conscience. It comes from a, I don't know who I am anymore. And it's heaped up generation to generation to generation. And our children are not only carrying their own, they're carrying ours. Why? Is it necessary? No. We've said yes to the gospel, but we need to say yes to the freedom of the gospel. Don't just accept Jesus. Lay your idols down too and walk in freedom. Perfectionism, paranoia, everybody's out to get me like it's all about you. Perfectionism says, you know, at least I can, if I can just control everything and everybody, then I will never be exposed. All of these, all these come out of that. So, okay, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm almost finished. Isaiah chapter 61. Yes, God is speaking to Israel, but I believe that he is speaking to us as well. And I want you to remember Tamar's response to this subjective guilt and shame. She put it in her conscience, and she allowed it to define her. She put, she, she, she tore her clothes of identity. And she put ashes on her head, and then she put her hand on her head. It was a sign of her humiliation. It was a sign of her desire to be covered, her fear of being exposed, her helplessness. And she felt herself to be locked into that lifestyle, so she lived desolate for the rest of her life. And by the way, I will say this, her brother, who loved her so much, Absalom. She went and told her brother Absalom. She said, Amnon did this to me. And you know what he said? <sighs> Don't tell anybody. It'll disgrace her family. Don't tell anybody. You can live at my house. But it said that he hated Amnon and he never spoke to him in a kind way again. He just was mad at him for the rest of his life. But you know what Absalom did? He named his daughter Tamar. So the rest of her life, she lives desolate. Is she a, by the way, is she a daughter of the king? Was her position with the king affected at all? But she's desolate. Most of these words, when Jesus pronounces his Messiahship in the synagogue, he recites these words. Uh, and I'm going to look down here at verse verse 3 and I want you to listen closely Jesus, Jesus uses these so he, he really puts a stamp of approval on this passage 
Verse 3 says, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them what? King James says beauty. To give a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. This, this, this word beauty here means a fancy, beautiful head covering. Not just beauty, but something beautiful. And specifically, the Hebrew is uh, like a garland wreath around the head. Right? So, God says, the shame of ashes can be taken away. And you have this beautiful garland to wear, which is really what the text means. So, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. What our conscience will tell us is to put ashes, to heap ashes and identity upon ourselves. But what the Lord says is I'm going to give you beauty instead of ashes. And it doesn't say for ashes, it's instead of ashes, and it's joy instead of mourning, and it's, you know, gladness. Over and over you see these exchanges as you go through this passage of Scripture. So I want you to see yourself here. I want you to think about all the things that you carry and the things that won't let you out of the gate. The things that when you get ready to be super excited and to live on purpose for the Lord, but you remember who you really are. I want you to see yourself in this moment. I want you to think about being in that state of shame. And God says, you do not have to bear that anymore because I am covering it. But even more than that, instead of, the word instead means beneath the ashes I'm lifting, I'm sliding this beauty underneath it. It is actually, I'm not putting it on top of the ashes. I'm putting it underneath. It is more of your identity than the ashes are. Verse 6, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of God. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. There you are. The shame is completely taken away. And you'll notice in verse 10, and I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Listen, I'm telling you, there are things that we do where we deserve guilt and shame. But God doesn't give us what we deserve. There are also things that we carry around that are a byproduct of other people's negligence or consequences in your life. And you can sit here in it, and, you, and some of the things that I've even said, you're sitting there saying, yeah, I know, I know, that was my story. Let me tell you something. You do not have to live in that place. No matter what it is that you have done, no matter what it is that you regret, if you will look to the cross of Jesus Christ, there you will find beauty that covers your ashes. In that place, not only does it cover the ashes, it settles underneath there and becomes your primary identity. But if you don't come to Jesus Christ, because that's the only place where you can find this kind of miraculous exchange, then you're doomed to walk around with your guilty conscience. You may be a Christian, but you might as well be locked up behind a gate. Hebrews chapter 12, I use this a lot, but... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. That weight's not sin because he mentions sin. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And what did he do? despising, scorning the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I love it because guilt and shame binds us up and the gospel says Jesus was bound. Guilt and shame destroy our reputation. But Jesus was despised and rejected 
of men. Guilt and shame reduce us to silence and cause us not to be able to speak. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Guilt and shame threaten to expose our weaknesses. And while he's on the cross, he hears, he saved others, the crowd mocked himself, he cannot save. Guilt and shame lead to abandonment. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guilt and shame diminish us and dishonor us. And he was crucified naked, exposed for gawkers to see. He bore our sins, bore our iniquities, bore the weight of all of our guilt that we choose to continue to walk in. Shame loses its power in the presence of the cross, and that's where Jesus wants us to live. Not in the presence of your shame and guilt. Don't live in the places where you have fallen. Live in the places where he has lifted your head. Listen to his voice when he declares who you are instead of your voice. And I'm telling you, it will be so much easier for you to walk free and on purpose. You'll be able to manifest, not only claim, but manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And I want us to walk that path together because I need to learn that too. That's how I know this message is timely. But did you know, I really do believe that one of the first steps, one of the first steps is forgiveness. And you may say, well, you know what? The people that I hear, the voices that I hear, I can't, I can't forgive them. Would you, would you entertain praying about being able to forgive them? He said, well, they're dead. Okay, you're probably not going to be able to reconcile, and that may not even be the goal. Reconciliation may not even be the goal. But you need to at least release them or your pain to the Lord and just see what he'll do with it. Guilt and shame have no power at the foot of the cross. And because of Jesus, you do not have to identify with your feelings that are carnal. You do not have to be who your voices say you are. Listen to Jesus. But you have to come to him and you have to surrender to Him. And you have to give it to Him. And so what we want to do for just a moment is we want to take just a moment and I want you to find yourself at the foot of the cross. And I want you to fast forward or reverse or whatever you need to do. And I want you to recognize who you are before Him and just release yourself to the Lord. Your pain, your fear, your guilt, your shame, all of those negative voices that hold you back all the things that, all the, the devaluing and all of the concept, all of the things. And I know in a room like this, they're varied. And I'm not going to ask you to expose them to everybody. I want you to expose them to the Lord. And let's just pray privately for just a moment. Just you and the Lord. And let's be free today. For a God who says, this is who I know you are. But I want to give you beauty for ashes. Where your ashes are, I want you to have beauty. And then he sent us the beautiful Jesus, our Savior, who despised our shame and his to offer us freedom and purpose. Let's pray together. Just continue to pray, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of instruction. Probably before this day is over, Satan is going to remind you of some things. If you want to be set free from them, Satan is going to remind you that he has a barb in you. 
So you need to be able to say to him, shut up, you're a liar. I am who he says I am. I am not my own anymore. I have buried that person that you were talking about. And I am alive in Christ. And over time, you will be free. So this morning, I ask you, do you want to be free? Or do you want people to just commiserate with you? Or do you want to be free? Whoever is free in Christ, just be free indeed. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.